So we're continuing in our verse-by-verse exegetical um, work through of the book of Genesis, uh, and we are very, very close to the end. And uh, this will actually be my last sermon for a while. I'm going to be taking some time off after this week to welcome the arrival of, of course, my new baby when that happens, um, but hopefully soon. Um, And... The very sad thing is I won't get to round out this series that I have preached so many sermons on. So I'm going to be looking forward to hearing someone else do it, which is good. But um, I'll have a little tear on my eye as it's nearing its end. Uh, When me and Beck were married uh, on our honeymoon, we went to New Zealand. It was a great time. We had so much fun going through New Zealand, seeing all different sites. We only went to the South Island. But I just want to highlight one particular thing that I loved. In Dunedin, there's this beautiful estate house known as Lanark castle. It's a beautiful place. It was built actually by a native Singleton boy. He was born, bred in Singleton, and then made his fortune during the Victorian gold rush as a bank manager. And then he set about moving to New Zealand and building his dream home. And boy, did he build a dream home. He built this enormous, elaborate castle built by the most masterful European craftsmen that money could afford. It was furnished with the finest materials found all over the world. This man spared no expense. The castle's view overlooks Otago Harbour. And if you've been there, it's perhaps one of the most beautiful sceneries you have ever seen in your life. And here he is in this magnificent house, being able to look out over God's beautiful creation. It's amazing. If you ever get to New Zealand, go and visit it. But then he died, which is really unfortunate. And the castle very quickly fell into disrepair. Little by little, the estate and the building were whittled down to nothing. The surrounding acreage was sold. The castle was auctioned off for a very cheap price. The interiors in it, made by some of the finest materials all over the world, were sold at a fraction of the cost. And finally, the last residents moved out, and what was once one of the most prestigious homes, literally in all of Australasia, the the whole oceanic region, was now a dilapidated shack covered in graffiti. It was repurposed into a lunatic asylum after this. And then a hospital for shell-shocked soldiers in World War I, until finally a local farmer used the luxurious ballroom right in the center of this castle as a place to hold his sheep. That's how far this place had declined. It shows us, the decline of Lanark Castle shows us that little compromises, little retreats, small baby steps can turn the most magnificent estates into a dwelling place for animals. And we have seen the same thing happen to our heritage of faith. Small compromises in doctrine, Slight reductions in the church community, minor submissions to culture have whittled the kingdom of God in the West to a mere shack for animals. And this ought not to be so. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Brothers and sisters, if we have been handed a sheep shack, then it is our role to restore the building to its former glory. We are called to leave a better godly inheritance to our children than the one that we received. A godly community with deep roots, resources that create longevity, a spiritual heritage that's rich and deep, and a legacy of love that can weather any storm. Today in Genesis 48, we are going to see Jacob doing just this. As he nears the end of his life, he is passing down an inheritance to his sons. 
But this inheritance is more than just possessions. It's more than just silver or gold, cattle, livestock, sheep, tents. It's a legacy of wisdom and it's a legacy of faith. One by a man whose heart was after God. And so I have three points to share with you in our passage today. My first point, leave a godly inheritance. My second point, God's plans are unexpected. And my third point, remember he goes with you. So verse one, let's get into our text. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. And Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Bethlehem, sorry. Well, we see here that the time has come for Jacob to die. It's been 17 years since he stood before Pharaoh and said incredibly that he was 130 years old. And now he is this day 147 years old. He has lived a long and fruitful life. But some sickness, some infirmity has come upon him and he's now about to die. And he realizes he's got to sort out all his affairs. He's got to get all his ducks in a row. He's got to make sure that what he's passing on to his children uh, gets passed on to them. And so Joseph, we know, he's been hard at work, but as soon as he hears that his father is ill, he calls calls both of his sons to come with him to meet their grandfather before he dies. And when Jacob heard that Joseph was there, he musters up his strength. He rises himself up out of the bed. As you can imagine, this was quite difficult for him at this age. But before any blessing is given or any word of inheritance is spoken, Jacob reminds his son Joseph who God is. He reminds him back in Luz, which was the Canaanite name for the place Bethel, if you remember that place Bethel, where God appeared to Jacob twice. And he makes it clear to Jacob that the promise given to Abraham will come through him, come through Jacob. And Jacob highlights two important aspects of this promise. Number one, that he's going to have many descendants. He's going to be fruitful. We know this. We've heard this over and over again. And that they will possess the land as an everlasting inheritance. This land will be theirs. God will uh, be faithful and show himself truthful on his promise. And these promises really are as sure as the rotation of the earth, the shining of the sun or the seasons. And this promise was not merely for Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, but for the descendants of the household of faith. And it's then that Jacob does something very interesting. He decides to adopt Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And as you can see, he switched the names around. When Joseph brought them along, we see them named the way that you're supposed to name them. The firstborn son, Manasseh, 
the second born son, Ephraim. But when Jacob calls him, he says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. They will become sons. And this, for an ancient person, is huge. Because what that means is that he is, in effect, upgrading Joseph's two sons to chiefs of tribes. And rather than Joseph just receiving one portion of the land and then dividing it by two between his sons, he will instead receive two portions through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. When a Hebrew son inherits a portion of land from his father, the way that they work it out, let's say this man has six sons, you would portion up the land between your six sons and each son would get one sixth of the land. Well, technically not true. The firstborn son would receive what was called a double portion. What they would actually do is divide it by seven and would give two of those portions to the firstborn son, and then every other son would receive one of those portions. What Jacob is doing here is saying, Joseph, you will be the firstborn. You will inherit the promise. He will receive a double portion through his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. The promise that passed down from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, will now pass from Jacob to Joseph, and then to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. These two half-tribes, the half-tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, together will make up the tribe of Joseph. Sometimes when you read the tribes of Israel, you'll know that there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? But you'll read the list and you'll be like, hang on a minute, I counted 13. What's going on there? Well, you've got to remember, Ephraim and Manasseh are technically one tribe, the tribe of Joseph. But this well-deserved inheritance is more than just material possessions in the future. It's the great spiritual weight of being the people of God. And Jacob emphasizes this point. He says, these boys, they're born in Egypt. You know, I didn't have any opportunity to come to them when they were born. I wasn't there. I didn't see them. But he says, these are now my sons. They are Hebrew boys. They are not Egyptian boys. This is in effect what Jacob is saying. They are my sons. They belong to me. They have our spiritual heritage, not the Egyptian spiritual heritage. They will inherit land in Canaan. They will not inherit land in Egypt. Now, let's say for a second, you're Ephraim or you're Manasseh, two royal boys, right? They're princes of Egypt. These guys are set in Egypt. They have everything they could possibly need. They've got their father, Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt. They've got their mother, right? Asenath, the daughter of the priest of On. They have prestige. They have prominence. These young lads, likely in their late teens, early 20s, they're just beginning out in the world and they have the pleasures of Egypt before them. All the prestige, all the honor, all the worldly choices you could possibly have at their fingertips. And they could decide to just press into their mother's identity, right? They could just say, ah, yeah, dad's a Hebrew, but look, hey, we're going to go to our mum's side because that's a good way to go. We're going to get everything we want if we go that way. Or you could trade it all in for the promise of an elderly, poor shepherd man that you have never met until just now trade it all in you know when you get like that idea where someone's like you can buy you can get the washer and dryer or you can trade it all in for what's in this mystery box everyone's like oh the box the box well the boys seem to choose the box the mystery box they don't really know what they're getting themselves into 
But this is where their upbringing through Joseph and their faith in God really shines. For these young lads, they choose to forego worldly wealth and embrace God, even though it might mean disgrace and poverty, even though it might make them an abomination to the Egyptians. Remember that from last week, don't we? What would you choose? The pleasures of the world at your fingertips. Prestige, fame, honor. Right there, your birthright. Or you could trade it all in for the household of God. Matthew Henry says, Jacob will have Ephraim and Manasseh to believe that it is better to be low and in the church than high and out of it. To be called by the name of poor Jacob than to be called by the name of rich Joseph. It's a high call. It's the same for us. You have to believe that it is better to be a doorkeeper in the household of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, Psalm 84.10. And when it's our time to lie on our deathbed, as Jacob does, are we only passing down worldly wealth, material wealth, possessions to our children, or will we be passing on something far greater like this old man Jacob here. And I don't just mean your physical children, although that is incredibly important to pass down things to your physical children. But what will you leave to the followers of God who come afterwards? Guys, it doesn't matter whether you have been born into this world and you have inherited a sheep shack, a once former glorious castle that has been dilapidated and decayed and declined and now is just a haunt for animals. If that is what you have inherited, Make it glorious. Don't sit around complaining. Don't sit around hoping that things will get better. How can we restore this church, restore the hunter to its former glory, the church in the West, which is now dilapidated and destroyed? And by God's grace, he will work through us and we will have something better to pass down to the next generation. And by God's grace, if he does that and he does work through us, we must understand that whenever God is at work, we have to expect the unexpected. And that leads me to my second point, that God's plans are unexpected. Let's keep going in our text from verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Well, we see that Jacob, the old man, takes great joy and pleasure in seeing his grandsons for the first time. He gives glory to God, not only to allow him to see Joseph again, but to see that Joseph's household was not destroyed, but is flourishing. And the moment came for Jacob to bless his sons. And here he does something unusual. Your right hand is like the hand of power, right? For right-handed people, you may be like, yep, for left-handed people, you might be like, nah, not really, but it's always that way in Scripture. The right hand is the hand of power. That's where the primary blessing flows. The left hand is uh, the secondary hand, which would go to the secondary son. And so Joseph brings the sons to the hands that are supposed to go on these sons' head, and then Jacob does something a little different. He decides to cross his hands. Instead, the right hand goes straight onto Ephraim's head, the left hand onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph is not impressed with this, which is ironic because he's the 11th son receiving the firstborn blessing right now. But he wants to make sure his sons do it the right way, that they get it the right way. He wants Jacob to recognize, no, Manasseh is my firstborn. I'm, I'm giving everything to him. This is the guy I choose. This is the son I choose. But Jacob knows what he's doing. He doesn't do it by mistake. He's not pranking Joseph. He's not playing some like old man trick on him, about to have a good chuckle. No, he's not doing that. Not even because he likes Ephraim more. He's like, oh, Ephraim, he looks like a better guy. I'm going to give it to him. No, it's because he is speaking with the spirit of prophecy here. The patriarchs are called prophets. In fact, God refers to the patriarchs as prophets. We even saw in Genesis 20, God referring to Abraham as his prophet. These patriarchs were God's representatives on earth. His prophets, the people that spoke out the worship of God. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this tale in uh, Hebrews 11.21. He says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob knew that Manasseh would be great, but Ephraim would be greater. And when the tribes were gathered together in the wilderness after the Exodus, Ephraim indeed was the bigger tribe. And together, Ephraim and Manasseh are what I'd like to call an alpha tribe. Joseph's tribe was up there as one of the greatest tribes. In fact, there is two alpha tribes in all of Israel. We know that one of them is the tribe of Joseph expressed in Ephraim and Manasseh. Do you guys know what the other one would be? Judah. And when they were gathered together in the wilderness, Ephraim and Manasseh together were the second most powerful tribe. Who was the most powerful? Judah. You might remember a while ago, I was talking about Leah and Rachel. And we know that Rachel was the decision of Jacob. She was the wife that he loved, that he wanted to be with. 
Leah was the wife that was rejected, that was hated. And I said in that time that Leah was God's choice. But here in this passage, we see that it's, is it Ephraim, Manasseh, is it Rachel, actually the choice of God? Because we see the birthright of uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob now passing down to Joseph, not Judah. But if you guys know your Bible pretty well, who comes from Judah? Jesus, the serpent crusher, the guy we're waiting for this whole time reading Genesis, we're waiting for the serpent crusher. You get to Genesis 48 and you think, we found him, it's Joseph, it's his line, we're going to work through that. But no, it's Judah. What is going on? Here we find the promise of God in, in the promise of Abraham split. There's the promise of fruitfulness, descendants, the promise of inheritance within the land. But then there's a promise of a king. And here there is no such promise given to Joseph. The king will come through Judah, not through Joseph. But I don't want to de-emphasize the role of Ephraim and Manasseh. If you guys have read the Minor Prophets, What's the favorite thing that the prophets used to call the northern tribe of Israel? Does anyone know? Ephraim. Why would the prophets refer to the whole northern tribe of Israel, which was made up of 10 tribes? Why would they choose to call it Ephraim? Because Ephraim was the alpha tribe. Ephraim was the powerful tribe. Ephraim was synonymous with Israel, just like the tribe of Judah in the south was the Alpha tribe, and that's why we call it the Southern Kingdom of Judah. Even though Benjamin was down there, even though a whole bunch of the Levites were down there, they were kind of interspersed between them. Joshua, you may know, is from the tribe of Ephraim, one of the early leaders. And so powerful were their tribe that they are pretty much an Alpha tribe. And so the fact that God uses the least likely should not surprise us. God uses young boys like Ephraim, to be the ones that he chooses because he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God's grace does not care the way we think the world ought to be, who we think ought to deserve judgment, who we think ought to be overlooked and who God should show his favor to. God does not care what we think. Already in the book of Genesis, God has chosen whoever he wills. God is in the heavens, right? He does whatever he pleases. And he is not beholden to any custom, any tradition, any value of that we like to put forth. Uh, he chose Abel above Cain, right? He chose Shem above Japheth, Abraham above Nahor and Haran, Isaac above Ishmael, Jacob above Esau, Judah and Joseph were preferred before Reuben, Moses before Aaron, David and Solomon before their elder brothers. We read that when uh, Ian was doing, uh, reading his passage. It's because God doesn't look at people the same way we do. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And through the prophecy of Jacob, God chooses Ephraim the least likely in a way that he did not choose the other sons. Jeremiah 31.9, God says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. 
These blessings that the patriarchs give at the end of their life, they're prophetic utterances that carry the seal of God on them. They are true. And while God may have put laws in the books of Deuteronomy concerning the rights of firstborns, He is not bound to any of His own laws that He set up. God is free to choose whom He wills as He has shown time and time again. God does the unexpected. Jacob wants these young boys to know that God is in control. That walking with Him is what their fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob did before them. And that the greatest inheritance that Jacob can pass down to them is not riches or fame or fortune, but the God of their fathers. To Jacob, it is worth more than all the riches of the world simply to have God as his shepherd and his redeemer from all evil. And Jacob knows the story is not over, that many great things will occur after he is gone and he passes down what he has to his sons. His love and faith in God. Brothers and sisters, let it be that at the end of your life, more important than riches and wealth and homes and businesses, you pass down the knowledge of the Lord who has redeemed you from all evil. That you pass on a godly legacy, a godly way of life, a godly way of walking before God that those under you can imitate, grab hold of, and they themselves pass that down to the next generation. Whether you have a family or not, You have this immense privilege to be sowing in to the next generation that comes. Pass on that torch. Everyone, every individual runs their own race, but how much better and easier it is when your parents have forged that path before you. Leads me to my third point. Remember that he goes with you. Let's round out this passage. Only a couple more verses. Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Well, there is much that Jacob's left behind in Canaan, hasn't he? And he will leave it behind. His kids are going to have to be the ones that will get it back again. We remember when Jacob came to the city of Shechem, a whole bunch of craziness happened there. But one thing that happened there was he purchased a field. This mountain slope that he's talking about here, he purchased it from the Shechemites. Well, we don't see it recorded in Genesis uh, until now, but apparently the Amorites retook that field and Jacob had to actually go and fight a battle to get it back. He's fought valiantly and bravely. He has won that field back with blood. Imagine that. You've gone off to battle to win this field and now you're in Egypt and you know you're going to die in Egypt and you know that your children and your children's children are going to die until 400 years later and you fought so hard for that field. It's not the end of the fight, is it? The battle's not over. He passes on that battle to Joseph. This field has great sentimental value. He wants it to go to Joseph and to no other. But by the grace of God, we see Joshua 24, 32, that this would be where Joseph is buried. It says this, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. 
It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. See, God was faithful and Jacob knew this. He knows that Joseph would not be buried in Egypt. He'll rest in the promised land. And at this point in salvation history, the promises of Abraham look further away, don't they, than closer. They've come down to Egypt. They're immensely blessed. They've now got the land of Goshen. But the promises, everything they've done, they've they've dwelt in the promised land for at least two centuries now. Think about that. Do those promises seem closer or further away at this point while they're dwelling in Egypt? Further away. They're not in Canaan. They've won battles. Their blood has been spilt in that land. They've dug wells. They've raised up altars and places of sacrifice. They've named cities after their God. And all of this is going to fall into the hands of the Canaanites. All of this will be taken away from them. At this point, it might feel like the hope and brilliance of the uh, promise is starting to look a lot like Lanark Castle. Fallen, dilapidated, into the hands of God's enemies and used as nothing more than a sheep shed. And will they themselves even be buried in Egypt? It's the promised land gone. You think in this moment, of all moments, Jacob would be the one at the forefront dwelling in self-pity over this, wouldn't he? But he's not having any of that. Here in the last moments, he reflects on his life and full of hope and wonder in God, he says these words, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Christian, remember this, the words of Jacob right now, God is with us. He is with you. The church in Australia might feel like it's fallen into disrepair. It's full of false teachings, bizarre practices, lukewarm, effete foppery and complete disloyalty to their people. The walls may have fallen in, the ballrooms decayed, the ground covered in weeds, there's sheep poo in the carpet. But this is no excuse to wallow in self-pity, is it? Wishing for better days, days when we were in the land, days when we were winning that battle and that field was ours again. We all long for those days when the promises seem closer, but now they seem further and further and further away. But what does Jacob say? God will be with you. He will bring you back. And it may not happen in your lifetime, for surely it did not happen in Jacob's. He knew he was about to pass out of the world. But it wasn't going to happen in Joseph's or Ephraim or Manasseh's lifetime or even in their children's lifetime. But does that take away from the truthfulness of what Jacob's saying here? No. Joshua will rise up, one of the sons of Ephraim, and that field will be taken again. We all have our part to play in the great scheme of salvation history. Play your part with fervor, zeal, and might. Don't give in to fear or self-pity or doubt. Don't feel so sad that you're not going to see the salvation of Australia in your lifetime. That's okay. Because God's gospel will triumph. Press ahead knowing that God goes with you. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to self-pity. Don't give in to doubt. He will bring you again to this place. And if it is not in this life, it will be in the new heavens and the new earth when you are risen again from the dead and you will be brought back to the land. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this blessed inheritance that we have through the gospel. That we will dwell in heaven forever with you. That all the wealth that comes from knowing you and from being close to you is ours in Christ. That you have worked valiantly in the gospel. That your blood spilt has rescued us and redeemed us. That we have something far more greater than any wealth, prosperity, comfort, ease, pleasure. Lord, we have you in all fullness of joy. And Father, what better thing to pass down to that next generation than a full-orbed knowledge and understanding and love for you. Father, we confess that things look bad here in our country. People are not worshipping you. People are not interested in you. And it appears as though the light has shone in this darkness and the darkness although it has not overcome it, does not understand it and hates it. But Father, we know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that these men and women out there that don't know you are made in your image and that you call many into your kingdom. Father, I pray that we would be busy at the work of rebuilding this fallen temple here in Australia, that we would once again be the church with all the fullness of love and fellowship and grace, obedient to the scriptures, loving you above all else, training and our children in righteousness, and we ourselves growing day by day in our walk with you. Father, I pray for each of these individual Christians that are here. I don't know what these men and women are going through, where their hearts are at, where they are at, whether, Lord, they've had a tough time, they've been in a place of despair or self-pity or doubt. But Father, I pray by your Spirit you'd encourage them with this message, that they will have renewed vigor, that they would go out into the world with strength and might. We thank you, Lord. We love you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.